The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Each week they present a public forum whose mission is to deal with significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values of the contemporary world and to promote critical thinking. So, without further ado, here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum. Well, let's get started. Good morning. I'm Michael Duffy, member of the All Souls Forum Committee. The All Souls Forum exists to present issues of ethical importance in contemporary society. And we have with us this morning Keith O'Connor, who is a defense attorney, criminal defense attorney, uh, who is working on a very significant and imminent death penalty case in Missouri. Uh, as you know, Missouri is one of the now minority states that still does execute individuals for crimes. So he has a pending case now, um, individual Michael Tysis. Please join me in welcoming Keith O'Connor. Thank you very much, and thanks for the warm introduction. And thank you, Michael, for arranging all of this and help with the audiovisual today. Not to be distracting, but I know that the lecture today was entitled A Plea from an Artist. And in the background, you'll see behind me, because I'm not really going to touch on it while I'm speaking today, are going to be images of my client when he was a young boy and the images that he's created in his art throughout his life. So we're especially proud of him because he uses it as his coping mechanism because he's been incarcerated since he was 19 years old. So what you're going to see is really the only manifestations of freedom that have ever existed in his life. You'll see him as a child when he was not in custody, and now he's come to maturity in a prison cell in Potosi, Missouri, for over the last 20 years. And this is how he finds soothing in his life. So again, my name's Keith O'Connor. I made the unfortunate decision to go to law school some 15 years ago, and I'm paying the consequences of it still to this day. But I've represented Mr. Tysis for about five years now, and we'll talk a little bit about where we are in the process later. But everybody gets appeals. Everybody knows about that. Everybody talks about that. You'll often hear people complain, why does it take so long? Why are they on death row so long? And you'll certainly hear the people who are a little bit more aggressive, shall we say, about capital punishment as a method of how to deal with crime in this country, complain that it takes so long. Well, part of that process is that you were afforded a variety of appeals, some of them in state court and some of them in federal court. And I represent Mr. Tysis in his federal appeals. And now as we enter the late stages of his litigation in his clemency efforts with the governor of Missouri. So I brought with me, there's a pen and a piece of paper up here at the front, and I want to be transparent about what I'm asking for today. What I'm asking for are teammates. And I hope that you'll listen to my presentation today and hopefully be moved and motivated to want to help because we need teammates at this point. As a lot of you may know, Kevin Johnson was executed by the state of Missouri this Tuesday. Kevin and Michael have analogous circumstances, and then they were both 19 years old when they committed their crime. They both spent a long period of time in custody without problem, I would add. And then they are both, Mr. in Mr. Johnson's case, executed, and in my client's case, scheduled to be executed. When I came and was trying to combine my thoughts on how to best tackle something like this, because I think that there's a familiarity that most people have with concepts of the death penalty, but not necessarily the 
level of detail and the weeds that a person goes into when you're litigating their case. So I thought to myself when I was speaking with Michael, he said, you have about 40 minutes to speak. And I thought, oh, geez, that that is like the worst amount of time to give me because I could talk to you for five minutes and I could talk to you for five hours. But 40 minutes is kind of a difficult squeeze to put that all into perspective. And then I thought to myself, well, that's just kind of the complicated chore of living in society as we do now. We oftentimes sacrifice truth for simplicity. It starts when we're children, right? They begin with fables when we're young about who perhaps is coming for Christmas as we're on that season. And then maybe even into educational circumstances when we're told about uh, someone like Christopher Columbus and we're taught that he's a great explorer. It continues into our adulthood as we self-educate and we follow the news and take imprint into our brains. And we hear things from like a meteorologist who say, gosh, it's going to be a hot one outside. Consistently hearing these notions of simple truths that really aren't the full complex nature of what's going on. What you might hear about my client, the headline that you'll hear is a man who at 19 years old killed two jail guards in a failed prison escape. Two separate juries unanimously voted that he should die. That's the simple headline. But those simple stitches so shut an honest, complex, and meaningful conversation about the truth. A more thorough examination would reveal that Christopher Columbus committed genocide. These aren't just hot days we're having. We're in the middle of an existential crisis that society has never faced before in climate change. And that my client, Michael Tysus, is set to be murdered by the state of Missouri for something that he did as a 19-year-old. So I thought, let's have an honest, meaningful, complex conversation about what goes into a situation like this, how someone could possibly look like this, and then turn into the villain it's so easy to take out back inside your house and put down like a dog. So Mr. Tysus is represented almost exclusively throughout his career by the Missouri State Public Defender's Office. Now, that's a bit of a complex issue that I'm not going to go into in totality. But what I will tell you is the Missouri State Public Defender's Office is amongst the worst funded public defender systems in the country. Now, I won't, uh, I'm not here to throw stones. I'm just here to simply say that when you have too many cases, too many clients, too few lawyers, and not enough resources, it's difficult to be good at your job. And I should know this. I worked at the Missouri State Public Defender's Office for my first three years out of law school. Now, I loved it, but everybody's a little bit different. And what I can tell you is the reward that I was consistently given at the public defender's office for my hard work and my dedication were more cases. I never complained. And I remember we would go down to the lunchroom every day to sort of get, get it off your chest, let, express yourself about how the day went. And people would start telling me, oh, I've got 75 cases. Oh, you have 75. I've got 83 cases. And I thought to myself, I don't even know how many cases I have. I had no clue. But apparently there was a way that you could check within the computer system that would show you how many active cases you have. 
I'd like to point out this is kind of funny for one reason. You would think your lawyer would know how many cases he had. I didn't know. I was so busy. I had my stack of clients and I knew what I needed to get done in that next hour, in that next two hours. And if I took a moment at nighttime at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock after I'd put my daughters to bed, that's when I'd begin work again to realize the long-term picture of, oh goodness, I have a trial coming up in two months or, oh goodness, I have a trial coming up in three months. So when I was finally informed on how to look up how many cases I had, lo and behold, I had the most in the office. I think I had like 110 and I didn't even know it. But that is the system that Mr. Tysus went through as well. He went through a system of people who are overworked, overburdened, and don't have the resources. Now, I said earlier that he was the product of two separate juries, and that is true. He actually won a retrial in 2004 at the, at the hard work of one of his attorneys, the Missouri State Public Defender's Office, a man by the name of Greg Mermelstein, who, if you've ever met him, is a phenomenal lawyer, a fantastic lawyer. And he won Michael a retrial. But when he had his retrial in 2010, he was given what we like to call contract public defenders. And those are people who have their own law practice, but they take a case on a flat fee basis. And for those of us who are aware of public policy considerations and how to best motivate someone to do work, a flat fee contract is not the best way to get someone to work hard. Because you give them the bundle of money up front and they get no more or no less, depending upon the work that they put into the case. So I'm going to fast forward just a little bit here because this is kind of an interesting point. We're kind of in this area. So Mr. Mermelstein, the individual who worked very hard and won Michael a new trial in 2004, he was approached by the two contract lawyers who were handling Mr. Tysus's retrial. Now, when do you think that they came? Do you think that they contacted him a year before trial? Maybe we'll do show of hands. Who thinks? So he won the new trial in 2004. He didn't actually have the retrial until 2010. So there were six years where the case lie in dormancy. So who thinks, who thinks show of hands that they were contacted him somewhere in that five to six year mark? Who thinks? That's, I think that's the joy of optimism, right? I mean, we've got a room of cynics, which uh, you're not wrong. Preview. Who thinks three to four years? Two years? One year. Who thinks they contacted within a year? One year? How about six months? Six months? About three months. How about two weeks? Two weeks. They gave a phone call to Mr. Mormonstein and said, Hey, who should we put on at this trial? And Mr. Mormonstein told him, Everyone. Everyone. He'd called somewhere in the neighborhood between 50 and 55 witnesses in his pellet process to win Michael a new trial. When they had the retrial, I think there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 witnesses called, including some experts weren't even called to the witness stand. So a lot of what you're going to hear me talk about, because I'm going to transition to talking to you about what we've discovered about Michael, about what his life is, who he was, and the circumstances that led him here, oftentimes we'll use experts which makes perfect sense. Everybody knows what an expert is, right? It's sort of a tautology. An expert is an expert. But you hire someone that knows what they're talking about. A psychiatrist, a psychologist, perhaps someone with an emphasis on what your client may have. Perhaps your client was sexually abused. Perhaps your client had 
and let's call it sort of heightened trauma that someone else wouldn't experience. But there's a variety of things that can happen. And you would call those people to the witness stand and they would very calmly and colorfully explain the process of your client's life. So when this retrial occurred, they read the transcript of this person. So if you're sitting there as a juror, the impact that the retrial attorneys were making was by simply standing at a podium and reading in a very dry manner a transcript of what these experts had said. Instead of seeing them sit in that witness box and make eye contact with you as a juror, explain the process of how they became an expert because these people are really interesting people and they're definitely teammates of ours in this journey. Oftentimes they believe similarly that we do in these circumstances. They've dedicated their lives to helping people, often from a clinical or a, or a medical manner, and they believe in these things. But instead, they just had a dry reading. So that's kind of how I got involved in Mr. Tysis's case. So let's talk about the crime. I think it's important to talk about the crime because I think it's something that it's almost like Chekhov's gun. Everyone's waiting for the reveal. Okay, you're probably going to tell me that he had a bad childhood. And I am. You're probably going to tell me a lot of good things about him. And I am. But I think the question that oftentimes lingers in people's brains are, what did he do? What happened? And so I'm going to tell you what he did. So I want you to remember that when I tell you this story, there's going to be a couple important things to remember. And the most important thing to remember is who is Roy Vance? So here's the story of what my client did. My client was arrested around Moberly, Missouri in the late late 1990s. No, he's not from Moberly, Missouri. We'll get to this part of the story later. He's from St. Louis. But he's in Moberly, Missouri, and he's arrested for the very, very, very dangerous crime of not making all of his payments on a layaway stereo from an electronics store. He thought he'd made enough payments, and at this point in his life, due to severe neglect, abuse, trauma. He had decided the coping mechanism of most Americans. He'd found weed and drugs and booze. And so at this point, he had a friend convince him that they should sell that car, sell that stereo so they could get money for drugs. They did it. It was a mistake. He ultimately gets charged with a crime. He serves about 60 days in jail. 60 days in jail for not making the final payments on a layaway boombox. He was not given attorneys. He sat in jail. There was no response to it. Ultimately, he's released, but he's placed on probation, which is a great thing for people who have resources. It's a great thing for people who have friends and family members. It's a great thing, a great thing for people who have transportation. Because don't forget, when you're on probation, when you're on parole in this country, you have to go to a place, a designated place at a designated time every week to let them know that you're doing a good job. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And we all may sit here and think, well, it doesn't sound so hard. And it doesn't sound that hard. But I'm going to ask you, how did you all get here today? Did you ride one of those fancy mechanical horses that we all get around in the modern era? And I know I got here in one of those. We all have cars. We all have means. We all, hopefully, luckily, aren't living in poverty. In America, we love to criminalize our greatest sin, 
poverty. Michael was poor. At this point in his life, he was homeless. His mother had abandoned him. He was living wherever he could find a place to sleep. But he also had no means to contact or be in communication with a probation officer. And frankly, his educational limitations at this point prevented him from even, frankly, understanding what he was supposed to do. Because at this point, he's 18 years old. So he doesn't go to his probation officer. He incurs a probation violation that gets him shipped back from St. Louis back to Moberly. He's put into a jail which I, a term I use loosely, I visited this place before. And I was talking to George Baggett before I got up here. And George and I both live in Coleman Highlands of these absolutely beautiful old-fashioned homes. And that's actually what the prison looks like in this case. It's an old Victorian home in Randolph County that they've refurbished to look like a jail. So when I said earlier that we sacrifice the truth for simplicity, and I warned you what the headlines would look like in this case, when they say jail, they mean retrofitted Victorian mansion. It was as laid back as you could be. The guards would go and smoke cigarettes with the inmates. There was barely any security of any kind. So when Michael goes back to Randolph County, now on a probation violation for failing to make payments on his layaway boombox, he meets a man named Roy Vance. Roy Vance at this point is about nine years older than Michael, and Roy grooms Michael. Roy gives Michael praise. Roy tells Michael that he's a good person. Roy tells Michael that he's going to be his big brother. Now, most of what I'm telling you right now about Roy and Michael's relationship has never truly been heard by a jury in the state of Missouri. The 24 people who've elected to sentence Michael to death have not really heard this because this evidence wasn't really uncovered by the prior attorneys. Roy makes all of these promises to Michael, assures him that they will be brothers for life. And he says, I've got an idea. Roy Vance is in this prison because he just broke out of another prison. He's quite the talented fellow. In that one, he did an old school Alcatraz style, digging himself out, burrowing out, and he actually does escape. So they decide they've got to put him in a more secure institution. They need to put him in a retrofitted Victorian mansion where the guards up front will pass whatever contraband you want back to the prisoners. No big deal. So Roy convinces Michael, hey, you're only in on this probation violation for this boombox stereo, whereas I'm facing 50 years in custody for my prison escape. I can't do 50 years. And also, I love you. You're my brother. I'll do anything for you. He convinces Michael that once he gets out, he needs to contact his girlfriend, a woman by the name of Tracy Bullington. So Roy Vance and Tracy Bullington are in a relationship together. And Michael does just that. He calls Tracy when he gets out, they have this convoluted plan where they're going to pass socks or cigarettes back through the front desk guards to signal whether or not it's time for the prison escape to go. Now, here's the plan. Now, remind you that the simple version of this plan is one of malevolence. That is the story the state has always sold. That is the story that the state will sell as they attempt to persuade people that my client deserves to die. They believe that this is a scheme of criminal masterminds, that these two individuals 
had this plan and we're going to get out of here, Bonnie and Clyde style. This is their actual plan. To come in with a gun, put the two guards who were at the front desk into a jail cell, lock it, free themselves. They had no money. They had a beat down uh, import that Tracy Bulletin drove as their only method to get out of there. So their solution was to commit a series of bank robberies, Bonnie and Clyde style, until they got to the Mexican border. So it's sort of an amalgamation between Bonnie and Clyde and Shawshank Redemption that they thought up and that this is their genius plan. Now, when I say that the simple story is one of malevolence, I mean that they, the state of Missouri, has ascribed truly a criminal mastermind sentimentality to these two individuals. Well, the truth is they're both incredibly broken individuals. As Michael tells the story, they went to the jail on a couple of different nights, and Michael, in a panic, walked away and didn't want to do it. But he knew the plan was clear. I am to put a gun on these two jailers, order them into a cell, then I'll free my friend, and everything will be fine. And when you think about it, it really is pretty juvenile, if you think about it. Well, what did they think was going to happen? And if you've ever been to Randolph County, there's not a lot of places to hide if you're on a road. There's just not a lot of roads. It's the country. There's this road and that road. And when they put an APB out for you, they're going to find you pretty fast. So what ends up happening is Michael pulls the gun, and in a fit of panic, he shoots the guards. He doesn't execute the plan. Unfortunately, he executes the two jurors. And it's sad, and it's tragic. And Jason Acton and Leon Egley, who are the two guards in this case, certainly deserve all of our love and outpouring of compassion and empathy. And that's not necessarily what I'm trying to make this about, because I'm trying to save my client's life. But in no way are we trying to say that anyone is right or wrong in this situation. To me, it's a situation of just sadness. This is a sad case and a sad situation. So, of course, Michael gets caught. Tracy Bullington is with him, too. They're caught within a few hours after their car broke down in Wathena, Kansas, across the border. So they basically take, I forget what the road is. So they take, basically they cross over near St. Joe around I-29, but they take, six, is it 63? Whatever the road is, it'll get you from 33? Yeah, 33, that's what it is. They go across that way and they get caught and they're arrested and he's never been out of jail since that very moment. And that was in 2001. The state of Missouri is attempting to seek a warrant for his death as we speak, and we're trying to save his life. Because let's talk about his life. Because that story is a sad story. That story is a bad story. That story is a story that we don't want our children to grow up and do. That's a story we don't want our friends or our neighbors to do. But we have to say, why would a person be like this? So one of the things that we do, that I do in my job, is we will research our clients' history, not just about themselves, but we will go back not one generation, not two generations, but not three generations. We'll go, excuse me, all the way back to three generations. And this might be something that people are familiar with. This is something that we're starting to see a little bit more in the public sphere of what we're talking about. And that is, we hear this notion that Drama is historical, right? Is this something that people are generally familiar with? That trauma is something that's passed down. Okay, so I'm going to give you some quick hits of my client's family history. His paternal grandparents, so his, this is on his dad's side, his paternal grandparents 
had five children before they were 20 years old. They abandoned all of them. His paternal grandmother re received electroshock therapy starting when she was 14 years old. She had frequent and unpredictable mood swings. She would fly into a rage without provocation. Um, when one of her granddaughters had a loose tooth, she immediately ran to the shed, grabbed a pair of pliers, forced the head of the child open, and plucked the tooth out on her own. And as my children who are still losing their teeth can attest, that's a very scary story. She would threaten to beat her grandchildren, and at this point, she was not trusted with any of the grandchildren. On the paternal side of my client, um, substance abuse is rampant. His, uh, his dad's brother, a.k.a. my client's uncle, died before he was 50 of alcoholism. His grandfather was married four times and had addiction to prescription pills. He had a child die of an overdose at 20 years old. Um, on both sides of my client's family is a staggering and alarming history of suicide. And you may have seen, as the image is scrolled by, one of these photos is a self-portrait of my client. And it's the one where he says, I hate myself. I wish I would die. We'll talk about that when we talk about Michael, which is really, really sad. But I count three different people at the turn of the 20th century in my client's family who committed suicide by swallowing carbolic acid, oftentimes in front of family members for dramatic effect. There's at least two members of his family who jumped off bridges to commit suicide, one jumping off a ferry boat. That's his maternal third great-grandfather. But he did that in the 1970s. So we do this to present a larger picture. Because oftentimes, and I'm going to go right now into talking about my client, about my client's circumstances that I think make him so incredibly sympathetic and why we're asking you to be teammates. But I think it's important to realize that these incidences don't just pop up. It's not just he had a bad mom, and he did. And it's not just he had a bad dad, and he did. But his dad had a bad dad and a bad mom, and his mom had a bad mom and a bad dad, and so on and so forth. So what we'll do when we're working on cases like these is we'll make a big flow chart, just like a family tree. But instead of just putting down their names, we'll use symbols. So you might use a red circle to show physical abuse or a... Uh, or green triangle to show sexual abuse, or a blue wave to show suicide or something like that. So when you lay the chart up of my client's family, it's just littered with iconography. All it is is neglect, abandonment, abuse, physical and emotional, uh, suicide, mental health issues, substance abuse, addiction issues. So remember now, when we're talking about this story about Michael, who literally is the most adorable little boy I've ever seen in my life, that his parents, in some senses, were made this way too. So here's the story of my client's life. My client's mother's name is Patty, and his father's name is Chuck. Patty's mom's name is Dottie, and Dottie's important. So Dottie and Patty were really the people who were around Michael for most of his life, his mom and his maternal grandmother. Dottie got married when she was 20 years old, to a 35-year-old man named Andrew Mertens. And Andrew Mertens was actually a really good guy. He was a hardworking guy. He was a laborer. But when Dottie and Andrew, I'm Patty, Dottie, a 20-year-old at the time, decided, wait till it sounds familiar, she didn't want to be a mother. 
She didn't want to be a mother. So she decided around the time that Patty was one year old that she was just going to disappear from the picture. And she did. And Patty had a pretty decent life. Her father was a landscaper. He worked hard. He wasn't around all of the time, but he was emotionally supportive. He was emotionally present. But he died when she was 13 years old. And that's when the cookie starts to crumble on the Lambert side of the family. So at this point, Patty, who at 13 loses her one anchor in the world, starts to just stay in her room, refuse to come out. By the time that she's in high school, she's fairly sexually promiscuous. By the time she gets married to Chuck, when she's 19 years old, Michael's father, Chuck comes from a long line of police officers, and Chuck at some point is going to become a police officer, and I'll tell you about that. But Chuck's dad warns him, don't marry Patty. And that's because she had a nickname in the Brentwood Police Department. This is Michael's mother. Her nickname was the Bag Lady. And she was called the Bag Lady because she was an underage prostitute. Men would put a bag over her head so that they could claim that they didn't know how old she was. So Patty has a child before Michael, my client. And this is an important person. She has another son from another man. His name is Joey. Joey is the apple of Patty's eye. She absolutely adores Joey. He is bigger physically than Michael, though he was born with serious health problems. And he's the one that's showered with all the praise. But as Patty begins her first foray into being a mother, Joey who does grow up to be a strong, healthy individual, is born prematurely. He has serious health issues. Patty's mother, Dottie, who abandoned Patty when she was born, wanted to know why Patty wasn't going to go see little Joey in the ICU. And Patty would insist that it was pointless to visit her sick son in the hospital, asking, what can I do? I'd just be sitting there. So at this point, Dottie has to take on the role that others took on for her. At this point, Dottie and Patty and Joey are all living together in Andrew Merton's old house. Remember the guy who was the hardworking landscaper who was her father who died when she was 13. They lived in that house together. But Dottie got the growing impression that Patty was not doing a great job as a mother. So she decided to set up a sting. She and her sister Gloria decided to say that they were going out for the night. And that while they were going out, they really just circled around to see what Patty was up to with her infant Joey, who'd just been released from the NICU. And what they found was a huge wild party is going on. They break in, and little Joey's bright red from crying all night long, and no one's come to give him any attention. So right there in that moment, Gloria, who's Patty's aunt, and her mother, Dottie, make Patty sign a contract essentially giving up the rights to Joey going forward. And Patty only had one demand. I want to make sure that I receive the welfare payments for Joey. That was her only request. So Joey goes away and Joey goes to live with Gloria, his aunt in Illinois. During this period of time, that's when Patty meets Chuck. Chuck is Michael's father, Chuck, the one who comes from a long line of police officers. When Patty and Chuck married, they were very young. They both were, they were 17 and 19. Um, 
and things uh, went okay for a little bit, but it didn't take long to realize that Patty wasn't the only person in this relationship who was damaged. So was Chuck too. Early on, it became pretty clear that Chuck was beating Patty. There were frequent phone calls left out. Um, physical abuse began to be sort of a hallmark of their relationship. And this is all when Patty's pregnant with Michael, my client. So the story that gets told is that when Michael is born, Chuck had always wanted a little girl. So Chuck walks into the delivery room, realizes it's the wrong thing in between the legs, and says, I never wanted a daughter, and storms out. Now, Patty, who's emotionally immature, had been struggling since her father left her, she tells this story as an amusing anecdote throughout Michael's life. She consistently gives the refrain to him that your father always wanted a daughter. Now, Patty shortly finds out after Michael is born that Chuck had always been cheating on her, which leads to some more physical fights, which leads to Chuck not leaving, but enlisting in the Army Reserves. So he enlists in the Army Reserves, leaves the family when Michael is a newborn. And at this point, Patty goes back to um, being a sex worker. She would drop off Michael and Joey when Michael was as young as being in a carrying car seat at a bar that her mom worked at and would leave him there until one in the morning when she was out um, running around. When family members would come to visit Patty's house, they would find Michael, who was a toddler, running loose, wearing a diaper that was soiled for so long that he gotten it on his hands. So she would, Patty would be somewhere else in the house, occupied with other things. Everyone tended to describe her as cold and uninterested in her kids. It was clear that she preferred Joey. If Joey came up to Patty seeking hugs or affection, Patty would respond, but not for Michael. If Michael came up to her, Patty would speak harshly to him, yelling at him constantly. She never hugged him, and Michael appeared to outside people at this very young age, he's a toddler now, that he was always hungry. When they would talk to Patty about it, Patty would always say, tell them to go to the fridge to get themselves a cold hot dog. And family members believe that they, the boys, both of them, subsisted solely on Pepsi, cold hot dogs, and potato chips. So at this point, there is a split between Chuck and Patty. Chuck comes back from the Army Reserves and says, I want out of this relationship. He files for divorce paperwork, and that's when Michael's life gets really hard and really challenging. They choose, in their infinite grace and wisdom, to use Michael as a pawn back and forth between each other. Uh, ultimately, we get to a point in the narrative where Patty is making Michael endure severe emotional and physical neglect. And on the flip side, we have a father who essentially gaslights his own son. The stories that we consistently hear are that Michael would have an arranged time to be picked up by Chuck to go and stay at his house, but Chuck would never show up. And then Michael would go back inside the house and cry all night long. And the only thing he could do to calm himself down was to make art. This is his one soothing mechanism 
this is the mechanism that he's learned from the trauma that his two parents put him through. Now, one of the things I've learned about um, the impact that various adverse childhood experiences have on people is that I always kind of apparently wrongly assumed that physical abuse is worse, right? I feel like, and maybe I'm not alone in this, maybe you guys are all smarter than I am, but I had always been under the impression that to be sexually abused or physically abused would cause far more harm to someone than any other thing. That ends up not being true. And anybody who's ever been a parent, I think, can tell you that that's true. Because what's the one thing every child always asks every parent a hundred times a day? Look at me. Look at me. See this? Do you see what I'm doing? Do you see what I'm doing right now? Do you see what I'm doing? Hey, dad, I'm doing this. Hey, mom, I'm doing this. See me. See me. Those young, fragile children always looking to us grown-ups to have their consciousness, their soul, their being firm. So there's no greater impact harm that one can have on their life beyond neglect. He had a mother who didn't want him, who didn't care for him, who showed him no physical affection and ignored him. Meals were called hot dogs. And on the flip side, he had a father who did the same, but in a little bit more grandiose of a fashion. Chuck gets injured when Michael's six years old. He's been a cop. He's been a cop his whole life, wants to be a cop like other people. He gets shot on duty, which is unfortunate. Um, he ultimately ends up working in law enforcement related positions for the rest of his life, but he's never really able to be a police officer again. He falls into problem with prescription pills. There's all kinds of crazy stories. He even takes my client to a police station one day. They'd arrested a black man, and my client's six years old at the time, and he asked him if he wants to go beat up an N-word with him. Chuck, my client's dad is a bad guy. We've asked him to cooperate in this process. He has no desire to do so whatsoever. Patty passed away years ago, and she was cooperative. But the story that you're hearing is truthful account, this complex, meaningful, nuanced perspective on what it took for someone to show up one day and do a thing that they did in the Randolph County Jail takes years of neglect. It takes years of abuse, but it also sets the stages for Roy Van. Remember I told you, don't forget about Roy Vance. Someone who had a father who loved them or a mother who loved them, or maybe an uncle or a grandfather or a grandmother. Those outlets that we all have provide an opportunity for us to have an anchor, to find that one person where I see you and you see me. You're going to be that barrier for me. That person never existed in Michael's life until he met Roy Vance. So going forward into his life, Chuck, although he's injured on the job, Although he begins to become addicted to pain pills, ultimately marries a real saint of a woman. Her name is Leslie. Real opportunity at an anchor here. And for those of you who have watched On the Waterfront and happen to think that Marlon Brando is the greatest actor of all time like I do, this is a real situation of could have been a contender. Because we keep seeing these little moments in his life where someone steps up. And Leslie is one of those people. So Leslie is Chuck's second wife. And she's very sweet to Michael. Michael refers to her 
I want to see if I can get the quote right here. He's got a, uh, Michael is religious. He's a Christian, but he has, there's a quote from Corinthians that he likes about her, about love is patience and love is giving. That's how he sees Leslie, even to this day, even though she and Chuck are no longer married. So Leslie ends up acting as the peacekeeper when she gets married to Chuck. She settles the beef between Chuck and Patty, who consistently use Michael as a pawn to wage in their wars against each other over past grievances. And Leslie begins to push Chuck towards the idea of bringing Michael to live with him. And that's when, really for the first time, we get an outsider's perspective on what Michael was like in this era. Now, this is he when he's about third grade or fourth grade. And I haven't talked to you a lot about his educational history, but the quick hits are he struggled. He clearly had a learning disability. He didn't act out in school. He was a good kid. But he had learning disabilities and nobody was there for him, right? We had a mother who neglected him, didn't go to parent-teacher conferences, didn't follow up with an IED plan, didn't stay committed to making sure that he got back on the right track. So when Leslie gets engaged in his life, Leslie notices that when they go to pick up Michael, it's oftentimes late because Chuck had odd hours and they didn't live in the same part of St. Louis. But they always knew when they went to pick up Michael from Patty, there was one guaranteed truth that Michael was going to be in rough shape. He was frequently sick. He had a constant runny nose. His hair was greasy. He wore dirty, too small clothing. He often reeked of urine. Michael has since told us that his mom never told him how to shower or how to brush his teeth, let alone get to flossing. Michael didn't learn how to clean himself or bathe himself until he got to prison when he was 19 years old. Now he has a hypervigilance towards making sure things are clean. And if he gets a particular cellmate that doesn't keep the cell clean, it's, it's a very bad thing for Michael because that's his structure. That's his truth now that he knows how to do these things. But Leslie ends up being a bright star. They start to have more frequent communication with one another. Leslie and Chuck start having a family of their own. And they have a daughter. So Chuck finally gets the daughter he always wanted. Now, of course, he didn't write the ship. He continued to have problems with prescription drugs. He was a bad parent. Uh, he would sleep all day when he was watching his baby daughters. All kinds of problems. But I think the thing that's super important to realize is at this point, things are kind of going okay. He's hanging out with Chuck and Leslie, who's become sort of a shining star for them. But this is when we have our biggest problem in Michael's life. Michael is approached by Chuck and asked if he wants to go to the arcade with his dad. My son's just, head just perked up. I think he thinks we're going to the arcade later. What little kid doesn't want to go to the arcade? It's a great experience. So Michael says, yeah, dad, I want to go to the arcade. So when they get there, Michael is handed a wad of quarters and given it to him by his father and said to get lost. But at this time, a neighborhood girl that Michael recognizes, comes and puts her hand down the front of Chuck's pants. Michael, who's in around, I want to say the fifth or sixth grade at this point, is pretty confused about what this is and what's going on. So he'd had some interaction through the Department of Family Services and different issues at school he's had with some counselors because things aren't going great in his life. And the people on the outside looking in can tell. He's got a bad mother. We've got a kid who looks kind of bad when he's showing up to school. But he went to school in an economically depressed area, so he wasn't necessarily the one who stood out, but some teachers would tell you that he did. So 
he is taught by some counselors when he's confused about things, what he should do is he could write it down. That that's the best way to deal with his feelings is to write it down on a piece of paper. And his father, with his law enforcement background and his hypervigilance, would consistently do what he called cell checks on Michael's room at their house. So in the process of doing a cell check, what do you think Chuck finds? Michael's entry, Michael's little diary entry where he's explaining the confusion of what he saw. Now, mind you, he is exceptionally naive. And truthfully, until he got into prison at the age of 19, he was naive. Michael has no conception that his mother is a prostitute, despite the fact that multiple people, including his own father, would tell him what a prostitute was. He'd have to run to another school-age kid because he had no parent. He had no parent who could explain things to him. So Chuck, of course, finds the letter, and now Michael doesn't get to live with Chuck anymore. He has this brief oasis where he's living with his father for a period of time. Leslie's there, supportive and loving. And Chuck, in the middle of the night, drives him back to Patty's house, hitting his head against the window the entire drive home, telling him that he's an idiot, that he's worthless, that he's no good. He drops him off at Patty's house and says, I don't want to see you ever again. And that's when Michael's life starts to get real bad. But before we talk about where Michael goes from age sixth grade to the 19-year-old in Randolph County, there is one little thing that we need to talk about. And I think I'm doing okay on time, Michael. Am I doing all right? One minute. Okay. So the last thing, see, five, five minutes, five hours. It's not good. So the one thing I didn't tell you about Michael is the reason why he was so attracted to Roy Vance as a father figure, as a brother figure, is because he didn't really have a brother either. Since his mother never paid attention and was consistently emotionally neglecting them, she never paid attention why his older, bigger brother, Joey, beat him to unconsciousness regularly. Michael described his childhood at Patty's house as having to learn how to sleep on his stomach because he preferred to get beat up in his back. His brother, who outweighed him by some 50 pounds every year, according to pediatric records, took great zealous and pride in beating his brother daily. Other mothers in the neighborhood would ban Joey from their houses so Michael could have a safe place that he could go and hang out without his brother's repercussions. So this was a truth of his entire life. So while his mother fed him cold hot dogs, she also allowed his older, physically bigger brother to beat him multiple times to the point of unconsciousness. This was witnessed by neighborhood children. So when we say that Roy Vance had a significant and meaningful part in his life, it's because there was a hole in Michael's heart where the love was supposed to go and nobody ever filled it up. And the only person who took the time to care and were in Roy's situation pretended to care was Roy Vance, the only one who ever pretended to care to love him. And so that's how you get someone to do something that's so dumb, so misguided, and something that I think hopefully all of us think is the type of person who deserves perhaps a second chance. And I told that to Michael. I said, I'm going to ask these people to give you a second chance. And Michael said, don't tell them I'm asking for a second chance. I'm asking for a first chance because I never got a chance. And that's what we're asking for. If you're willing to help us, if you'd like to help to write a letter to the governor, to be a part of a clemency video that we could film. Please just put your information up there. I'm happy to contact you. We're looking for teammates. So I know I went over time. I'm so sorry. There's like 9,000 things I want to talk about. But thank you for listening.
Keith, that was great. I, I You did go over time, but I was reluctant to interrupt you. You're so mesmerizing in the story. Thank you. Please tell that to my family. <laughs> uh, it's time for questions, so please feel free to come up to the microphone. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, please confine it to questions, not speeches. We only have a couple of minutes for questions. And um, uh, if you want to ask multiple questions, please come back after others have had an opportunity. So please come up and... Uh, Going back to some of your earlier remarks, I wondered if you could elucidate for us what you feel has contributed to, is it a public support for capital punishment now, or has the general population grown to oppose capital punishment? And is that based on religious ideas out of the Bible, or where is, where is all of that coming from? I think that's a good question. I don't know if I necessarily have the right answer to it. It does seem as if public opinion for the death penalty wanes. I believe that there's a growing amount of education, certainly through documentaries and the progress of the Innocence Project, uh, Black Lives Matters movement, a variety of critical social causes that have awoken in people a disconnect and a dissonance between policing and old school criminal justice values that I think people are really starting to second guess. I know it may sound simplistic, but I think documentaries like Making a Murderer are incredibly significant because it gets eyeballs watching and questioning how it is that we do things. But in terms of capital punishment, I honestly think that the state doesn't publicize it as much as they used to because I think that they know that people aren't as interested in it. I mean, to me, fundamentally, the question is this. My client's never getting out of custody ever. He is going to die in a jail cell. So I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that we are going to proactively take him out of that jail cell and kill him. Isn't it sufficient? Isn't there enough? Isn't that, isn't that enough? Do we need more? So that, I guess that's my answer, if that makes sense. How long was Michael with Goy Vance? How long did it take to... For this to develop? Good question. That is one thing we spent a lot of time investigating. But in that kind of period where I, I was curtailed a little bit when I was talking, because I'm too long winded by nature, is um, we kind of lose track of, of our client. And we this is a, a common occurrence that happens for all of our clients because they're poor, they're nomadic. It's difficult to track them down. It's difficult to track down these stories. And then there's a legal issue where Roy Vance is a co-defendant of Michael's, so we can't exactly go and chat with him and get his perspective. We've talked to Tracy Bullington, and she's been helpful towards us. We went back and spoke with every single person who was in their pod at Randolph County. But I guess what I would say is our estimates are up to a year. Michael dated this woman named Misty Bunch, who was a prostitute in the Moberly area, and he didn't realize that she was a prostitute, even though men would come into her trailer park every day, go into the back, it would shake, and they would come back out. And he was like, what are you doing in there? And that was his girlfriend. So that speaks to his naivete. But that we believe that Roy Vance was in and around that trailer park, and that's where Michael first met him. We believe he, he met him the first time he was in Randolph County, when he was initially arrested and served 60 days for the boombox. And then he was back there. But in the conversations that we had with the cell members, they described Roy Vance's control over Michael as complete. That's a quote. These are from hardened people who have spent serious time in prison facilities, and they described their relationship as 
a complete control by Roy. Now, the older people, the people who had opportunities, who had fathers, who had, they wouldn't fall for this. You wouldn't fall for that. I mean, he's blowing smoke up your backside. And also, you're not going to get to Mexico. I mean, like, it's sort of a crazy ideology. And that's because it was so complete. I hope that answers your question. Hey, George. Good morning. Um, do you suppose, I mean, it appears that the governor of Missouri seems to be pretty much pro-death penalty. Uh, do you see any possibility of change in the near future from this position in the, with a much more uh, Republican and right-wing legislature and the mayor and governor? Yeah. Well, in terms of what Governor Parsons will or won't do, we don't you know, know yet. We're hopeful, but that is where we are at. Make no mistake about it. We're at the point now where we're going to have to ask Governor Parsons for clemency. I do know that Governor Parsons said in part of his press release as it related to Kevin Johnson's execution that he intended to follow the law, follow the jury's verdict. He felt it was important to see through the death penalty, especially since Kevin Johnson killed a law enforcement member. My client killed two. So it's not lost on us that it's something that we need to be mindful of. We're hopeful that Governor Parsons will listen to this story and see that this is a kid who was bullied and abused his entire life by his brother. His mother never paid attention to him. If we grant this man clemency, he's just going to make art for us. And doesn't that make the world a better place while still providing some semblance of justice to the Egley and Acton families? It might be hard to talk because his story is so sad. But in the time that um, Michael has left as a person, what do you think he needs the most? You know, separate and apart from the clemency appeals. Well, that's a good question. Um, So he has had a topsy-turvy experience in prison. He goes into prison as a very young man. Now he's 41 years old. It's crazy to think about that, that that's really his entire life. His entire perspective is that. At this point, he has a girlfriend who he likes, and she just came up to visit him. The most important thing to Michael in the world are food visits. So Potosi, if you're on good behavior at Potosi, you're allowed four food visits a year. And you can bring in, I believe, one or two of like those 9 by 13 Tupperware containers just full to the brim of food. And since he has to eat prison food his entire life, that is the highlight of his year. So he got to have one of those recently, so he's very happy. But he is uh, he's a huge NBA basketball fan. So if you happen to be a fan of the Boston Celtics or the Golden State Warriors, uh, you could send him a letter because he would talk to you ad nauseum about that. And he loves art and he likes to talk about art. If people want to support him, you can Absolutely write him letters. He loves to correspond with people. If you are sweet to him, he might make you some artwork. Uh, but he likes support. And a lot of that's handled by his girlfriend and the legal team. I speak to him every Monday. Another member on the family talks to him. Another member on the team talks to him every Tuesday. So we have active engagement with him there. But if you want to have outreach to him, he would love it. He would love it. I mean, the saddest thing is the first thing he told me was um, he hopes that he's not treated like a dog because nobody would ever kill the family dog. That was the first thing he said to me when I met him because his prior lawyers had been so poor and it cared so little for him. He freely, like I said at the end, 
that place in your heart where the love is supposed to go, nobody ever filled it up. So what he likes is attachment and consistency. So if you want to reach out to him, if you're consistent and have dialogue with him, he'll like it very much. Yeah, it's a good question. All right, we have one minute. So I don't know, I'm going to ask you a tough question in one minute. Uh, This will be the last question. Objection. (laughs) Uh, Setting aside your client's individual situation, you're, you're making an argument that he should be treated as an exception to the law which requires execution of people who commit heinous crimes. What's your best argument, however, for why there should be no death penalty at all? Well, because I think we're better than that. It's almost a a religious thought process, right? But it's also two wrongs don't make a right. Morally, ethically, it's a compromised position. You can't claim to be making progress or be moving forward as a society in any way if your response to someone who commits something bad is to do that exact same thing against them. So if we are saying that violence is wrong, which I think we all agree with, we cannot then do violence to others to show that that is how we deal with what is wrong. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Please join me in thanking King Totano. And for next week, George, do we have the topic? How safe is American democracy with Michael Smith? All right. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dial to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately. Followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni. And then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.